at the moment, certainly camera-based systems are the ones that are are clearly dominating. And so I guess I would be surprised if it didn't remain that way. But you never know. And so every Tesla will have to have a camera. For GSR to be sold in Europe, yes. yes. I just really wanted to get that on the record. Thank you. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy of the No Parking Podcast. I'm here with my colleagues. <laughs> That's my cue. Kirsten Korosek, Senior Transportation Reporter with TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the Communications Director for Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And we are joined today uh, to discuss a fascinating topic. Um, and one that has become uh, really much more uh, uh, front and center in the automated driving technology space um, for reasons that I think we'll, we'll be able to cast uh, quite a bit of light on in this episode because we are joined by Anya Denari. She is the Senior Vice President and General Manager uh, for Global Electronics and ADAS at ZF, which is a massive supplier a huge company, and um, they're doing some really interesting uh, things in ADAS. And um, so she's here to uh, to share her her view of of how that uh, technology and space is developing. So Anya, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. And and before we get in, could you maybe just give a, a little bit of, of background on on sort of yourself? You were originally an engineer. Um, you're now sort of on the on the business side. Sort of, ha- have you always been at ZF or or um, yeah, no, actually, I've, I've been at ZF for about six years. I've been in my current role leading the ADAS business unit for about three years. And prior to that, I actually led the uh, product strategy group. And I also led the integration between ZF and TRW. Uh, so that was a three-year-long process integrating all functions and uh, divisions across the 140,000 people, uh, you know, 230 locations, 40 countries. And prior to that, I I did start my career, as you mentioned, in engineering, actually, for Ford Motor Company, originally in combustion research, which uh, at the time was what I thought I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Unfortunately, now a dying field. Um, And uh, after business school, I spent some time in management consulting, too, before coming back to the, the automotive industry. So, so I imagine three years in in in, in charge of ADAS efforts at, at ZF, which again, massive global supplier, working with almost every automaker, if not Actually, every. Let's automaker. talk about how massive is ZF. So ZF is about forty billion, um, about one hundred and fifty thousand employees now worldwide. So, uh, you know, my division is, uh, you know, one of the one of the smaller divisions. ZF, I think, has traditionally been known for its transmissions which is the biggest uh, biggest piece of the portfolio. Um, and also to point out ZF is large, not just in passenger car vehicles, but also in commercial vehicles and industrial off-road stuff, including even things like windmills, um, where there's you know, transmissions also. So yeah, one of the, I think it's third largest uh, tier one. And, and so in, in three years, I'm really curious to, so you started, you took over the, the ADAS effort three years ago. And it seems like things may have changed quite a bit in the world of ADAS. Uh, uh, kind of uh, probably an interesting contrast to combustion technology, uh, which has become, you know, maybe less important over time. And 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 I have to imagine in the last three years we've seen ADAS go from being, uh, it may be a little bit longer than that, but it's it's definitely sort of seems to be coming into its own in a major way. What's what's that been like to just well, see hold that? Hold on, hold on a second, Ed. Cool again. I think I, that's what you're trying to say, Ed. Right. 
<laughs> let's, let's be clear here. I said in 2015 that the future of safety, the midterm future of safety, was ADAS. Well, you you must be Where, where did you say this and where can Everywhere. I literally, I literally said it everywhere. That autonomous vehicles will take time and ADAS and, and series automation and parallel automation for driver assistance was the future. And now here we are, Mr. Nari, you're going to tell us that I was right. You're going to tell me how you're doing it. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so I mean, look, on the, on the ADAS side, the market is driven primarily by regulation and ratings, right? And so that means that all vehicles have to have it. So in North America, we have MOUAEB. So 99% of all vehicles by 2022 will have AEB and therefore require ADAS. Um, in Europe, you have Euro NCAP and now coming in the future, also GSR, and that's going to require the, the serious fitment. So that's really kind of where the bread and butter is. And that's driving the basic functions. It's driving the fitment of camera and radar. And it's you know currently the bulk of my revenue today. Now, the exciting stuff, I mean, not that that's not exciting. Of course it is. But the, the really exciting stuff is, is more the fully autonomous. But there, you know, we just run into the issues of the cost to develop and the payback periods and the fact that you know, passenger car vehicles are not going to be able to afford to have that level of sensors and compute power and redundancy in terms of actuation and everything else. And so that's kind of, you know, the more exotic, much, much smaller, much further out. Um, and in the in the near term, you have your level one, level two, level two plus, And that's really what's driving the market, in, at least in the passenger car space. When did you notice a shift back towards, um, and maybe this wasn't internally, but talk about in, internally and externally, where you saw this shift in terms of resources, attention, investment back towards ADAS. Um, to me, it seemed like about 18 months ago, but maybe this was already happening. So honestly, it was already happening because, um, you know, the revenue and the profit was already coming on the ADAS side. So that was really, you know, the business that we were bidding on, the series production business that we had was all on the ADAS side. Now, that doesn't mean that a lot of the investment wasn't on the AD side. It certainly was. And, and it you know continues to be because the investment that's required there is so significantly higher. Um, but just in terms of sheer number of vehicles with ADAS, that has always been the bulk of the market and, and certainly will continue to be so through 2030 anyway, I guess, at least in passenger car again. Perhaps explain what you consider level two plus to mean. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so there has been a big challenge for, I mean, if anyone's not familiar, so level one means uh, uh, automation in a single direction, either longitudinal or lateral. Level two is in both directions. And then level three is the point where the driver can be out of the loop for a period of time. And the challenge there is just the amount of redundancy that you need to have. Um, in order for the driver to be out of the loop for a period of time just makes it expensive. It makes it difficult to develop and validate. And so what we're seeing a lot more of is uh, many, many of the OEMs um, skipping over level three and saying, we'll go to level two, ADAS, and then add a bunch of kind of comfort functions on top of all the safety functions and make it closer and closer and closer to level three, but not get to the point where actually saying the driver can be out of the loop. So that's really a space that we're seeing take off much more. And it's a space where, for example, at ZF, we actually offer various different level two plus solutions with differing levels of functionality and therefore, of course, cost. But I think that's where you really see the market. Well, if you would like to consider yourself among friends who understand what you're talking about, your home. <laughs> now, could, could you please explain on the menu of products that ZF offers OEMs? 
um, the different types of level two plus systems? Or what, 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 explain two different level two plus options to, to us, if you can, please. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I can speak to, for example, a couple of different ones that we offer. So we offer a level two plus system that we call co-assist. And that's really kind of the the uh, the most cost effective solution we have. And so that has, you know, a, a smart front camera. It has a um, uh, smart front radar and then surround short range radars. Um, and a very small SDE, a very small central domain ECU. And so we can package all that together for, you know, under a thousand bucks, which is a really affordable price point. Um, and what that can enable people to do is add a bunch of the comfort features like driver initiated lane change on a highway. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, for a more advanced level two plus system, once you add full surround 360 camera vision, um, in addition to the 360 radar vision, now you can add a lot more functionality. So you can add um, auto uh, lane change without the driver having to initiate it. You can add a highway exit and entrance, again, fully automated. And you can add the internal visualization um, in, in the vehicle. Now, that does require a lot more processing power, especially if you're bringing 12 cameras into the mix. Therefore, a much bigger central domain ECU. Um, more processing power required and therefore a higher price point. And the solution we have there would be a kind of a co-drive system or even a co-pilot system. I have heard someone, I forget who it was, some vendor out there referred to a system as level two plus plus. Yes. Okay. Do you recall who that was? Uh, I, th I think we all have our okay. own variations. So right. <laughs> your ZF, you offer a, a level two plus system that's a thousand dollars. You over to a level two plus system that is, I, I, what is the cost of the second variant? It would be over 2x okay. the okay. price, yeah, so, yeah, because by the time you add the more processing and the 12 cameras, okay. et cetera. I mean, do you claim to your customers that the second version is safer by any metric? Well, so again, it's different functionality in different use cases, right? So if you have the co-assist system, you're not ever saying that the dry or the vehicle itself will do a lane change without the driver mm -hmm. confirming mm -hmm. that it's okay to do it. And so, you know, that's your safety, right? The driver is your safety. In a co-drive type system, the vehicle itself is taking that responsibility and saying it's going to do the check and make sure it is safe to do the lane change without requiring the confirmation from the driver. So I think, you know, as a company that is completely focused on safety, we would never put something out there uh, with an OEM that wasn't safe. But there's just different use cases and functionality depending on the systems. How do you distinguish, I mean, to an OEM who walks in the door, one versus the other, other than saying this has greater functionality is that there's is there some metric of superiority to it uh if, if it's not safety what is it convenience well no, it's it's the functions that you can offer okay. so there's you know there's a whole list of you know 50 odd functions that you can offer and so i think about you know business that we've just been awarded and um, that particular oem was looking for 15 specific functions and so then we go through okay well what architecture are we going to need to be able to deliver these 15 functions um, and you know what kind of processing power are we going to need and how many sensors in what configuration and, and that's really how we define what's going to be able to meet the needs for each oem how do you handle the question of liability when it comes to you know, certainly as you start getting into higher and higher functioning um, products, it, particularly when there's this question of uh, the, the driver handoff issue, uh, 
what what's the company's uh, approach to that? Is, is the liability sit with with you, or does it sit with the OEM, or how does that work? Yeah, for the most part, it's with the OEM, right? And because the OEMs are defining what their driving policy is. Um, this is, again, where up to level two plus the driver is always in the loop. And so the, the liability is with the driver. And so that makes it a lot easier for the OEMs to put it out in the field. It's once you get beyond that, it gets really tricky. And so I, you, you probably saw the Volvo announcement just last week, um, where actually Volvo said with their fully automated system that they will put in place, including a Luminar LiDAR, that they actually, Volvo will take the liability when they're in the fully automated mode. So I think you're going to start seeing OEMs really have to think long and hard about what liability they are willing to sign up for. But in general, that's kind of part of the driving policy and the the liability will be with the OEM once the driver is out of the loop, if the driver is not required to be in the loop. Right. So even if the OEM, like let's take Volvo, for example, uh, takes that liability, does it doesn't completely or maybe it does keep uh, the tier one suppliers that may be providing some of those systems completely off the hook, or is there some risk there as well? Well, there's so of course, we always have all of the requirements that we need to deliver. And and so, of course, we are liable if something goes wrong in the field and um, the, the cause is that what we were delivering did not meet the requirements, then, of course, that's our fault. But, you know, that's why we spend so much uh, validating and testing everything we do. So everything that goes in the field, even in ADAS, is driving a million miles before it goes out there. And really, that's the goal is to make sure we're meeting all of our liability requirements and we are fully vetting out every potential use case. And, and that's really what's driving the cost in the fully automated systems, right? It's it's hard for a camera to recognize, say, you know, a truck with a logging vehicles on it, right? If they don't know what it is, or it might be hard for a camera to recognize a, a ladder that's fallen off the back of a truck and is lying in the middle of the road. And so part of our test and validation has got to be to think of every single use case that could happen, every corner case, and, and, and tell the vehicle what to do. So... Um... Driver monitoring systems will soon be ubiquitous in uh, around the world in human operated vehicles. But in the course of before we get to that, in the course of, of testing and validation of ADAS, have have has ZF been using DMS systems internally just to measure the efficacy of systems that don't include it? Um, so driver monitoring, you're meaning monitoring the like eye gaze and driver position, etc. Yeah. Um, no, no. So in a, in a level two plus system, so you're saying, are we monitoring to see if the driver is remaining in the loop and doing what they're supposed to be doing? Yes. And systems which may be sold to customers that don't include DMS. Yeah. So it's kind of an OEM requirement, right? And certainly we would, our position would be that for it to be a fully safe level two plus system that allows eyes off and hands off, you should have a driver monitoring system. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I think we all know there's examples of systems out there in the field that don't include us, right? I, I think you will see going forward in the future, you will see it become a lot more standard. And even some of the, the regulatory ratings will, will require it. So, so to be to be clear, though, so so if someone if if you're working with an OEM partner on a level two plus system, um, in all cases, there's a, a driver monitoring system. Not necessarily, right? Not necessarily, they they right. would the particular OEM does not necessarily always have to require it. I mean, if you're thinking about a super cost effective that's used in limited circumstances, so I go back to Coassist and it's a driver initiated lane change. That's how you confirm the drivers in the loop, right? The driver must click on the blinker to say, "Yep." Um, I do want to change lane, and yes, I do agree that it's safe to do so. 
And so th that's not a driver monitoring system, but that is a use case that you would see some OEMs install. For sure. What in your view then is, or the company's view is um, a robust driver monitoring system? Because Tesla, for example, um, I have had a number of exchanges with them over the years that they will say, well, we do have a driver monitoring system because there has to be some sort of confirmation or because of the, the torque in the steering wheel. So, you know, they, they're interpreting that very differently than how I might interpret it, which is a camera facing into the cabin and viewing what the driver is doing. So what is your definition? Uh, what and what is a robust enough um, driver monitoring system? Yeah, so again, for something where you're going to not require a driver confirmation, having some kind of a um, either a camera or a radar-based driver monitoring system that is detecting eye gaze and that is detecting the driver positioning, I think is is uh, is clearly a a safe way to go. Um, and certainly, we I think we see the trend more and more towards that, and we certainly see so some OEMs such as GM have already in, included that. Um, but I understand Tesla's position, right? Their position was that the driver is always in the loop. And so the confirmation comes either from the hands-on detection or from the confirmation of the, of the change. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So, so I want to get uh, sort of ask you about something that you kind of referenced earlier, which is this distinction between safety features and, uh, and convenience features. Um, because, and, and again, I know, you know, Tesla's come up already here and uh, either, either by name or, or by illusion. Um, and clearly they've been at the cutting edge of, the, of working through some of this stuff. And, and I think it's been really interesting that when, when they first announced autopilot, um, they said that the safety autopilot safety features were things like AEB and FCW, which would be standard on every car. And that the, the, um, uh, adaptive cruise control and lane keep assist that, that now everyone just thinks of that when they think of autopilot, that that was a convenience feature. And actually over time, funnily enough, they've, they've sort of started selling those features as safety features as well. Mm -hmm. So, so there's been, I think in the public eye, at least a lot of blurriness about the, the, the line between, okay, what parts of these systems keep me safe or are safety features, but, and then what are our convenience? So how, how do you think about that? Yeah, so a lot of it really is what's driven by the regulations and ratings versus what is more kind of a, a you know, something that can be, uh, you know, not a requirement. So AEB, for example, started by the, the, even the MOU AEB is just car to car AEB. That's clearly a safety feature. 
Um, as you look at Euro NCAP, they're now requiring more and more complex versions of AEB, so pedestrian AEB, crossing cyclist, um, powered two-wheelers AEBs. I still will consider all those to be safety features, right, because they are going to avoid people from uh, getting into accidents. They are going to avoid injuries and, uh, and fatalities. Um, related to that is also kind of the whole integrated safety topic, so combining passive with active safety. Then the comfort features are the things that just make it more e easier for you to drive, right? And so those features are the ones that are starting in highway situations where it's more limited use cases, um, highway driving single lane, then highway driving multi-lane, and then highway exit and entry. So they're all the things that are not preventing you from, are, are not preventing crashes, but just making it easier for you to drive. So I guess that's how I is Tesla one of your customers? They are not. No, that's not for not for me. For other parts of the organization, but not for me. Um, um, and and so one of the the issues with these um, these comfort features is that you know there are questions, right? So so then there's kind of a vigorous debate about you know some people feel like um, having drivers uh, you know lane lane keeping and and things like that. Um, keeps them fresh on longer drives. And so it's sort of, there's a safety effect there. On the other hand, there is also um, quite a bit of academic research about um, the, the reality that, um, you know, supervising automation is, is quite difficult for humans, which is why mm -hmm. the, we have the driver monitoring um, system. I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, it, again, there's, there's research going on into this in, in the, um, in the academic world, but as you mentioned, you know, you're putting a million miles on these systems before they, they go out into public. Have you learned anything about how some of these convenience features, like, like how they actually do affect the human factor side? And I know you're, you're not a human factors research company necessarily first and foremost, you're, but, but you know, that, that driver interaction it is an important part of these features. I'm just curious if, if, if you've learned anything about that, that, that might be cast some, some light on this issue. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it certainly is an interesting question. And I do agree with you that uh, in some cases there is the danger, right, that somebody starts doing something a little more distracted if they are, aren't required. Um, but there definitely has been research to show that people are feeling better and fresher and more engaged once they get to the end of the journey. Um, I do agree, though, that having the driver monitoring in place is the thing that then help enables you to be sure that the the people are actually there at the end of the day. Um, and the whole HMI, how you interact with the driver is, of course, an important topic, especially as you're thinking about um, teaching people how to use the systems, because, of course, the whole driver education component is a, a huge piece of, uh, of rolling these technologies out. Right Today, people don't necessarily know how to use them. They're different from one OEM to another. Um, some people trust them. Some people maybe not so much. So I think as we as we go through the process and things start to become a little bit more um, common, we'll have to really have more of that standardization and we'll have to have a lot more of the, the driver training and, and common user interfaces to, to get us there. So uh, does ZF have a position on what type of driver monitoring system is necessary? Because there are many approaches to driver monitoring and even in, within the field of camera-based driver monitoring, there are different approaches. Uh, which is there one that you consider safer than another? 
Well, we have different different variations, again, depending on what the OEM needs. So there's kind of a, a two-dimensional one, uh, which is really can really focus on kind of the eye gaze piece of things. Uh, there's a three-dimensional camera-based system that, again, can really focus on the position of the driver and can do other things like detect seat belts and, and, and a few other things. There's also the broader cabin monitoring. So, right, especially as we get to fully automated, we're going to want to know what's going on, not just with the driver, but more, more broadly in the whole cabin especially relevant for things like people movers where you know there won't be a driver in there at all and so you need to know who's in the vehicle and um who left their cell phone behind or or whatever's going on um, and there's also actually millimeter wave uh, radar based uh driver monitoring and cabin monitoring systems that will focus more on heart rates etc so we are you know investigating all in some cases we're working with partners on some of the algorithms in other cases we're developing them in-house um, but I think that at this point it's kind of a little early in the process that so we don't necessarily see there's going to be one big winner here and so we're, we're wanting to offer multiple approaches right now as that all kind of shakes out. So what can you tell us about the Euro NCAP uh, standard because they had a committee that was defining uh, a, a driver monitoring standard. Uh, could you give us a little background on when that goes into effect and what that standard is? Um, so Euro NCAP, obviously, they, they, every two years, there's going to be a new set of, of guidelines and they will come up with, you know, pretty stringent requirements and testing protocols around, uh, you know, what exactly you need to meet and when, both on the passive safety side as well as on the active safety side. It's still a little bit up in the air. In fact, just last week, uh, Euro NCAP did announce some delays. I don't know if you saw that by a year or a year for the 2022 Euro NCAP as well as for the 23 NCAP. And then in parallel, we also have GSR regulations coming from uh, primarily Europe, and those are also going to require some form of, of driver monitoring. Um, Could you explain what the what GSR stands for and for those who aren't familiar with it? Because it's a much less common acronym for, for even yeah, people in our sector. Yeah, because it's newer. So it's general safety regulation. And uh, so that is going to be a requirement for all vehicles. So Euro NCAP is, is not a requirement. It's a rating. And um, people are familiar, I'm sure, with your NCAP that they're looking at a three star or a four star or a five star. But that's really it's not a requirement. It's just uh, as I'm going to as a as a consumer, if I'm going to buy a new vehicle, I say a five star vehicle is going to be safer. That's what I want to buy. Uh, GSR is going to be a requirement for all new vehicles that are sold. And there's kind of a two step process. There's uh, the first uh, step of, of GSR is coming out in 2022. That will have some specific AEB and lane keep assist guidelines, and every single vehicle, every new model will have to have that. And then coming in 24, then there's an additional set of uh, GSR requirements. Um, and so that's going to drive kind of the 100% fitment rate. And then the Euro NCAP uh, uh, um, functions that come are really on top of GSR. So GSR is your basic, and then Euro NCAP will be, will be on top of that. So GSR will include some level of driver monitoring? Uh, yeah, so for 24, it will uh, will include some level of, of driver monitoring. It's still it not finalized yet, but that's the that's the plan. And will it be prescriptive and require a camera-based system or at least a 2D system? I mean, so not to, so they'll never define exactly what the technology is. What they'll define is the functionality that it needs to deliver, right? Mm -hmm. And so the the technologies that we can use to to get there, it it might be pretty obvious based on what the final requirements are. But you know, there may be some scope for 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 different techniques. At the moment, certainly camera based systems are the ones that are are clearly dominating. And so I guess I would be surprised if it didn't remain that way. But you never know. 
And so every Tesla will have to have a camera. For GSR to be sold in Europe, yes. Yeah. I just really wanted to get that on the record. Thank you. <laughs> now, again, you, so you know, that's, that's not not all countries follow GSR, right? But you could say for OEMs who have global platforms, they're not going to want mm -hmm. to do one thing in Europe and do something totally different elsewhere. Mm -hmm. GM is the only kind of exception there because, of course, they don't sell in Europe. But for the most part, anyone with a global platform will likely have global requirements. Kirsten? I'm just following along. Alex has got the floor. Well, I, 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 could, I could dominate this well, whole discussion. Here, I'll, I'm trying I'll, to I'll, play, I'll, so. jump, I'll jump in for what you had mentioned a few minutes ago about really wanting to offer a number of different products and let OEM sort of choose. And I'm wondering if you have any early indications of, you know, what products is the great is there the greatest interest in? So across the whole ADAS field? Yeah. Yeah, so so camera is clearly the the leader overall, right? That's if you if you think about partially based on the number of cameras that there are in the field, but also the price point of a camera. So price point of a camera is you know three or four x what a medium range radar is, um, and you know we will we'll have a hundred percent fitment on cameras in the not too distant future. Radar is clearly the second medium range radar being the dominant there, um, and you know as we look at fusion systems and and Euro NCAP requirements, at least in the developed world, we'll be at a hundred percent fitment right there also. Then as we move into level two plus systems, then we're, that's where we start adding the short range radar surrounding the vehicle. So there'll be four corner radars there to do that. Um, and then as we move into higher level L2 plus systems, that's where we have then the surround camera vision. So once you have the surround camera, you move to more remote camera heads with a central domain ECU, just because, you know, the amount of data you're gathering from all the way around the vehicle is processed in one central place. Um, and then once you get to level three and beyond is really where you start seeing LIDAR. Um, certainly some OEMs are and will implement LIDAR for L2 plus, but it's not a requirement for L2 plus. Once you get to level three, four, five, where you need that redundancy in, in terms of sensing, that's where you start seeing it as a, as a requirement. And that's, of course, a, a very um, dynamic piece of the market too, right? There's so many players out there in the LiDAR space. There's so many different technologies. The price points are still all over the place. And so, you know, it'll take us a while before, we, before the whole LiDAR space kind of um, gets a little bit more consolidated and we, and we know which technologies we're going after versus camera and radar, which are pretty mature at this point. So just to piggyback on that camera radar thing, um, one of the things that's really interesting to me about the about your your affordable um, uh, setup uh, is that um, you have 360 degree radar coverage. So you have, a, um, is a, I think, a long or medium range uh, front and then and then shorter range corner radar. Corners, yep, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then a forward camera. And what's fascinating to me about this is that, again, just I hate to keep bringing Tesla up, but they are just sort of the, the test case in so much of this. Um, they took a, a, a very different approach in the sense that they have um, sort of a long range front radar, um, but then just cameras for the rest of it. And uh, that contrast just strikes me as kind of interesting. I wonder what what you make of it. And I understand, of course, that that you know their ambitions are, are slightly different than what your ambitions would be for a thousand dollar or sub thousand dollar setup. But I'm just curious sort of what. Um, you know, you mentioned radar being cheaper. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, would it be pretty affordable to have 360 degree radar and camera coverage? Um, and, and why would you sort of choose 
one of these sort of, you know, a camera dominant versus a, a radar dominant approach? Yeah, really, it's like, it's that kind of cost performance trade-off, right? And so in the low end, lower end co-assist system, where really we're trying to figure out how can you add those comfort functions for the very lowest price, short range radars are the most cost effective way to do that. So the short range radars, uh, you know, don't need to have the, the, the same level of visibility and uh, field of view and range that a camera-based system would have, but a camera-based system is more expensive. There's a lot more data coming in that then needs to be processed. Um, but our, for example, our co-drive system that does have the 360 camera vision, and that's what allows you to do the um, automated lane change. It also allows you to operate at higher speeds because the cameras then have a further range, and so they can see something coming um, faster, further away. Um, so, so really, that it's the cost performance trade off. The, the radar based system is definitely a lot more uh, cost effective than a camera based system. But if, if all of your systems um, from the, the very most affordable all the way up are going to have some, it sounds like some form of, of 360 degree radar coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, it, are there are there things related to right? Because we, we know every sensor has its, its strengths and its weaknesses. Um, are there sort of sensor diversity issues that when you get up to those higher comfort ranges where you still want to have? Um, 360 degree radar as a, maybe as a backup or as diversity and maybe um, you know foggier conditions or, or certain certain things where where a camera um, might not always work super well. Yeah, so certainly from our perspective, we would always have the radar, the 360 radar, and then in the co-drive system, you also have the 360 camera. Um, but that gives you the redundancy. It gives you the ability to see, you know, in snowy conditions, foggy conditions, whatever they are. Uh, of course, I understand that has not been Tesla's approach, but uh, the, the architectures that we're offering, at least, um, always have the the surround radar, and then and the in the co-drive system also has the the surround camera-based system. So um, I wanted to back up again when you were when we were talking about lidar, just briefly. What can you just give me? an understanding of what your work is within LiDAR right now? I mean, are you working with uh, any particular LiDAR startups or sort of the the primary one, which is Velodyne? Are you doing your own work in-house? What's happening with LiDAR? So we actually have a 40% ownership in a company called Ibeo. Um, And Ibeo is a company that actually does have a LiDAR on the market right now with Audis, uh, the Valio Scala. Um, and then we have a 40% ownership in the company based on the next generation of radar, a MEMS-based radar that will be um, going into production in a couple of years. Uh, that is, um, uh, well, we, we haven't announced yet who the, who the first customers will be, but that, that will be going into production here in the, in the near term. So that's our primary LiDAR partner. Um, in addition to that, we are working with another uh, LiDAR startup company, uh, more for the people mover type space and so more the kind of the higher end, higher price point area. Uh, but our Abeo partnership is where we're focusing on the passenger car side of the market. Okay. My understanding was, and Ed and Alex, jump in and correct me, but I didn't think that there was really any automotive grade LiDAR on the market right now. Um yeah, so the Audi Audi does have one in production today. Okay. Yeah. So if you were, I, you probably saw the announcement just last week, I think. So it, it was a 2017 Audi that they had the A8 that they right. were they were looking to have it be a level three, and they're right, right, right. Yeah. LiDAR. Unfortunately, regulation has not allowed them implement that, but the lidar was already on there. Okay. Okay. Can you actually talk about? Can you just discuss that the regulation you describe is not allowing it? Because uh, so it wasn't entirely clear on what happened. 
Yeah, so it's a European regulation that it's not allowed to be over, I don't remember what the number is, like 12 miles per hour, kilometers per hour or something like that. So effectively meant that you couldn't uh, you couldn't be hands off, uh, hands off, eyes off the road, and therefore you couldn't be L3. So that's something obviously European regulars, our OEMs and various different players in the market are, are trying to get changed in Europe, but it, it hasn't happened yet. So can you... To, to be back off, Kirsten, sorry, Kirsten, really quick, but like, you brought up a really good point with automotive grade. Can you just sort of, you know, because I think it's really easy to get people interested and excited when a company comes out and says, we have a this type of sensor that is long, you know, longer range than anything on the market or higher detail than anything on the market. And people freak out and, oh, this is such a big thing. And it is. These are these are cool accomplishments and they're important. But when, when a company comes out and says, we have an automotive grade version of this lighter that are, you know, that kind of, you know, pe- people don't see that as being a big thing. Like, why why is that? That's Such a, huge, an important it's a huge deal, actually. <laughs> it really is just to, to get the, le- the level of reliability. Because you think about anything that's going in a car, especially hardware wise, needs to last for 15 years. It needs to go through, you know, all kinds of awful weather conditions. It needs to last however many hundred thousand kilometers driven. And so, you know, the, the kind of electronics that are in your smartphone is not the same as the kind of electronics that has to go in a car because your smartphone you're going to throw away after two years. And if it breaks down, oh, well, no big deal. If you're you know, driving down the autobahn at 250 kilometers per hour and your LiDAR stops functioning, you know, that has significant implications. And so automotive grade is, is a really big deal in terms of reliability. And in fact, uh, LiDAR in particular is one of the products that actually has been very difficult to get to uh, manufacturability uh, with reasonable scrap levels and with the automotive grade. So that has been a a huge challenge, I think, for almost all of the LiDAR startups that are out there. And honestly, is probably one of the reasons some of them have not succeeded. Yeah, I mean, because it's got to be an affordable price point. It's got to be a reasonable scrap rate. It's it's got to be uh, with the level of reliability that we that we need for the full life of the vehicle. And and just the testing to validate that you've achieved that itself is is expensive and time yeah, consuming. And and so I understand lidar is is a little different than than radar and and, and maybe camera and, and and other components. But is there sort of a rule of thumb for sort of like what the cost like on a unit basis or whatever that like how much more does it cost to make for for two identical you know sensors, uh, one of which is automotive grade and one of is not identical in terms of capability. Um, are we, is it 25% extra cost? Is it 5% extra cost? Is it 40% extra cost? Just. So on, honestly, I don't know the answer to the question because everything we do, of course, is automotive grade, but it's, I can guarantee it's a lot more than 25% more though. I'm sure it's like two, three, five X higher. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's not cheap. So all the components have to be automotive grade. Um, but then the system has to be automotive grade. You know, you just think about the full cycle of testing that we do for anything through CV, DV, PV, PPAP, the whole the whole process. It's it's long and it's expensive. And that's why the cycles in the automotive world are, are so much longer than the cycles in consumer electronics. Uh, Kirsten, do you want to take us home? Well, um, I wanted to ask about uh, with the regulations in Europe and how it affected Audi, does that make the U.S. or specifically you know, North America, but specifically the U.S., the most promising market for level three? Because there is some questions sometimes about what is allowed in the U.S. and what is not when it comes to um, hands-off driving. And so from where you sit, what's the view? I mean, where does the U.S. fit in terms regulatory speaking wise to have sort of level three? And does that mean that more automakers are going to be focusing on launching that capability here in the U.S.? 
So certainly it is a, a, a place where we have more of an ability to do that than Europe. Um, of course, in the US, the regulations can be different state to state. So that drives uh, differences, too. Um, I think the other place I might call out would be China. Um, and there's, you know, there's differences in what the Chinese market is looking for. So, for example, level four valet parking is a huge thing in China and everybody wants it straight away. Um, but in China as well, I think is another space where there is the ability to uh, launch some of these newer technologies earlier and uh, maybe with slightly different requirements. Um, so, yeah, I mean, tons of interesting stuff. Also tons of interesting COEMs that are focused on the China market and so have less of the need for the full global um, approach. So that's another place I would point out. But certainly the US, it's culture of innovation, ability to get things done. It's a pretty exciting place to be. So the, you said something really fun and fascinating. You said in China, there's a lot of demand for level four parking. Mm -hmm. Is that and is that not the case in the United States? Is there more demand for highway level two plus plus? Yeah, for sure. Well, just just think about the, the use cases, right? Think about how many people are in small spaces in China and what the typical driving behavior is in the U.S. And the typical driving behavior in the U.S. is long journeys on highways, right? And so that's really where the customer demand is. Make that easier for me. In China, it's more about, uh, you know, so many people crammed into such small places. And so something that can drive my or park my car for me and then bring it back to me later is is where there is more of a near term need. And clearly that's uh, that, that demand is for privately owned vehicles to have a correct. level four parking functionality. Yeah, correct. And the, yes, the, the, most all of what I've been talking about has been in the privately owned pass car space. People move are totally different. So what do you tell OEMs who beg you for this feature? Do for valet parking? In terms of, yeah, in terms of timeline and costs. Because the, the ODD is clearly defined. The speeds are very low. Mm -hmm. If anything, it should be solvable? Oh, yeah, absolutely it's solvable. Yeah, no question about it. This is another area where we're doing some development in-house, but we're actually also working with a variety of partners too. So you've got to have the ultrasonics and the camera based, and uh, we are doing some of the function development in-house, and some of it we are uh, working with third-party partners for. But yeah, no, the part the valet parking is, is not a huge issue. That will definitely be available in the next couple of years. Do you want to be more specific about timeline and cost? Oh, <laughs> Not soon. No, no, not yeah. super expensive and quite soon. How about that? Couple is two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll, it'll be there in two years. And not super expensive. Is that a thousand dollars? No, less than that because all the old. So if the cameras are there anyway. You can reuse the cameras for mm -hmm. the parking, and then the ultrasonics are really not very expensive at all. So it's it's uh, it's not a not a huge add-on for the valet parking. Mm -hmm. And there's several companies out there working on it too, right? Mm -hmm. So I have one. We're, we're we're running out of time, but I have one kind of question that that is, is kind of relevant to the the work that I'm doing now at. at I have got twenty questions. We have tons <laughs> more questions, but I have one in particular, which is, you know, uh, what the auto industry does really well is is sort of not necessarily always be at the very cutting edge of technology because of all the testing and validation, automotive grade stuff that you mentioned. But once technology starts to mature, making it ubiquitous, right? Yeah. Just scaling it to the point where anyone can afford it and and have it in any car. Um, I'm wondering, you know, it, it sounds like we're kind of getting to the cusp of um, pretty near ubiquity uh, with 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 at least certain ADAS features, including some some of the comfort ones and not just the safety ones. Right. I'm I'm wondering, you know, we mentioned you mentioned sort of briefly the consumer education part of it, but I'm just wondering, you know, there's a big difference between early adopters using 
a newer technology and just the general unleashing it on the general public. Are there are there specific sort of educational things that you think need to happen? Does the industry maybe need to standardize how it talks about this stuff? Do, are there are there educational tools that you think are especially effective? Like what what can we do to get people ready for this? this sort of wave of new technology? Yeah, no, I, I actually completely agree with you. So yes, the cameras and the radars will be there and the things like AEB are going to work without any involvement from the driver, right? So they, if, a, if a car is going to crash, AEB is going to work. But for any of the comfort functions, yes, that absolutely requires driver training. And it really requires the drivers to get comfortable with the technology and be willing to use it. Because, you know, what you see today is there's so many people who just turn the features off, right? Because they don't know how to use them. They also need to be comfortable for the driver so you know something like lane centering it needs to it needs to feel comfortable for the to the driver and not feel like the vehicle is all over the road so i think we have to have a lot more standardization in in what the technologies are and how they're how they're deployed. We need a lot more training um, for people when they're buying their cars, which actually also, by the way, includes the dealers themselves really understanding it and being able to train the employees. Um, and then also for second and third users. Um, and and um, it needs to clearly have the value add for the consumer, right? They need to really understand what the value proposition is and how it makes their life better or they won't adopt it. So I think it's kind of a combination of all those things, a, a, a good value proposition, um, good training and the standardization in terms of the row light so it can be understood from one vehicle to another. I got a quick, fun question. I'm sure Mr. Nard can, a- can answer. Uh, wh- you talk about the uh, necessity of driver education in terms of all the different uh, ADAS systems. Why hasn't there been some form of active driver education built into modern vehicles? Uh, on, on the, we have these increasingly large displays. One could have um, audible cues. One could have uh, tutorials. You have the ability to record driver behavior and and and, and see the, the feedback between HMI and events on the road. Why? Why not? Yeah, no, great question. I, in terms of why the training hasn't happened, I, I can't answer that. I think it is a really good question. In terms of recording the driver behavior, that's a slightly trickier question, right? There you start to get into uh, data privacy issues and, and all kinds of other things. But uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of why the, the training hasn't happened, uh, I, I really couldn't answer that, but I do think it's a great suggestion. We should take it to all the OEMs. Yeah, I was going to say we should probably ask the, the OEMs that yeah. question. So, um, anyway, uh, you've been you've been extremely generous with your time, um, and we really appreciate you you coming on the show to uh, to uh, discuss this really fascinating uh, topic with us. If people want to learn more about um, if people want to follow you, is there maybe a social platform that you're more active on than others, um, or where people can look, um, or, or just learn maybe more about what what ZF is doing? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, yes, I'm on LinkedIn and happy to have any followers. I have to admit, I'm not super active, so I need to that, I need to take that as a to do. But then also zf.com um, and through LinkedIn and Facebook and everything else, uh, ZF is pretty active too. And we're usually posting some of the new and exciting things that we're working on. All right. Well, um, thank you again, uh, Anya Denari uh, from ZF. Uh, this has been really, really fascinating, really illuminating. Um, Thanks for taking the time and uh, and we hope to see you again on a, a future episode. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate the opportunity.